and during some of the toughest times I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time even to this moment uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I sprayed me in my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are gonna have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson, excited to have you with us for another great episode today. When I'm not recording this podcast, I'm working as a mental performance coach, which gives me the opportunity to unlock possibility, unlock potential in performers, both in business and in sports. So I help them cultivate their mindset, and we focus on how to maximize their potential, to enjoy success, and I love what I do for a living. So I started this podcast with a simple mission in mind. How are performers intentionally setting their mind to be their best? So we aim to unpack just that and bring intentional gems to you, the listener. Now, before we get started, I want to tell you about how you can help support the podcast. First, we appreciate you being here just by listening. You're helping to make this podcast go. But if you want to really try to help us out, go over to our Patreon homepage, which you can find at patreon.com backslash intentional performers. And if you can throw us a couple bucks, it really does help us continue to keep the lights on and keep the podcast running. So go over to patreon.com backslash intentional performers. Also, if you can share this podcast with your friends, with your family, with social media, it does help us extend our reach. Now to today's guest. I got connected with Josh Basil by good friends of mine, Matthew Friedson and Andrew Friedson. And Josh is someone that they have known for quite some time now, but I haven't met. So I was really excited to get to chat with Josh. And you are going to find out really quickly that Josh has a spirit, a gratitude to him that makes him unique. He also had an event that occurred when he was a freshman in college where he was on vacation in Bethany Beach, Delaware, and a wave uh, took him up and left him paralyzed. Uh, So it's a pretty traumatic experience. So Josh is going to go into detail on on what it was like before that accident and what it was like after that accident. Uh, But more than anything, I want you to really hone in on how Josh views life and how he interprets the events that have happened to him throughout his life and really how he uses gratitude as his North star to live the life that he wants. So Josh is absolutely an intentional performer and we get into the weeds on some of his sport experience and also on his advocacy. So he's an advocate, he's a lawyer, he's a teacher, uh, and he's a mentor. So he uses those words throughout our conversation today. And I know you will gain some wisdom, some knowledge, and hopefully you will leave this conversation with a different perspective than when you had when we first started chatting. So thank you so much for listening. Without further ado, I present to you, Josh Basil. Josh, thanks so much for wandering up Battery, uh, Battery Lane, and coming to visit me at my office here in Bethesda. Uh, Excited to chat with you. Before we turn on the mics, I was just saying our good friend Matt Friedson and Andrew Friedson both uh, said that you were someone that I should connect with. So uh, I know we chatted a little bit before this conversation, but I'm excited to go deep with you today and really find out what makes you unique, what makes you special, uh, and what makes you intentional about your mindset and how you're going about your life. Where I'd love to start is to just get uh, some idea of what life was like for you as a kid. Uh, growing up here uh, in Montgomery County, uh, walk us through what life was like for you as a child. Well, first, Brian, it's great to be here today, and thank you for inviting me out. 
Um, I grew up in Montgomery County since the mid nineties and, um, call this home and all my friends and family are, are local too. So it's special place to grow up. Um, I growing up life for me was sports, um, or chasing girls or just always just doing something active out and about. And, um, one day, uh, after my freshman year of college, I was on a trip to Bethany beach family vacation that I went to every single year. And I was in waist high water, turned my back to the ocean and a wave picked me up, threw me over my boogie board and slammed me on my head. And I shattered my neck and that's, that day changed everything. So we're definitely going to go to post that event. Before we do that, I just want to get a little more insight into what it was like playing sports and chasing girls. That sounds like a not a bad life either. So uh, what sports were you into as a kid? And just give me a little uh, insight into what uh, family life was like as well. Sure. So growing up, soccer and tennis were my big sports and uh, also golf. But tennis was probably my best. And I played um, tennis at Bullis um, in Potomac, Maryland and you know, trained my butt off to be really good at that and got my skills to a level where I was able to bring it to college. Um, was the top freshman on my squad up at Skidmore in upstate New York. Played uh, D3 tennis there. And um, family life, uh, uh, I have one older sister and um, uh, my mom and dad, we all lived in, um, in Potomac growing up and what else do you what else do you want to know? No, that's okay. Uh tennis, let's go into that a little bit. Sure. What was your mindset like when you were at Bullis and then your freshman year at Skidmore? Just take us there and uh what was it like in training? I think people don't always know how hard it is to train for tennis, the fitness that's required. A great book, Andre Agassi's Open is gives really good insight into it. Uh but what was it like for you being an elite tennis player in high school? Well, it was really the competitive edge that, that drove me. It's just I wanted to be the best I could be. And every opportunity that presented itself, I wanted to take advantage of and, and push myself to to the, to the next level. Um, so my drive as, as a young teenage athlete um, was very, very high. And it, was, it, it took lots and lots of hours on the court to, to get to where I wanted to be and to be competitive against my peers. Where did that competitive spirit come from? I'd say my, my dad. My dad's the hardest working man I've ever met in my life. What does dad do? Um, my dad's a urologist in uh, Northern Virginia in Fairfax. And he's just a, a workaholic, incredible human being, um, just an incredible role model for me that I just love him to pieces. But at the same time, he's just, he's... He came from very little and made an incredible career and has done incredible things. And just every moment of the day, he's always busy working and doing something productive. And it's just, it's a great um, person that I've been able to um, follow and and learn from. So dad taught you the value of hard work, uh, creating something and, uh, you know, putting your head down and doing the work. What did, what did mom teach you? Um, mom Tommy very much the same. My mom was uh, always there whenever I needed her. Um, she's, um, she's always, I think, you know, I could talk about stuff after post injury and how she just was never, she was always present. And whenever I needed her, she was always there. Um, but growing up, she, you know, gave me everything I needed to, to be the best that I could be. And my mom and dad did an incredible job of providing an incredible job of loving and incredible job of just being great parents. So you're a freshman at Skidmore. Uh, you're playing tennis. What were you studying? What did you want to do with your life? Did you have any idea back then? Um, business was um, right before my injury. I re- I've always loved stocks and just that part of the world. And I had an incredible internship, um, after my freshman year at Smith Barney and was really loving that and learning from the best of the best. And, um, that one vacation kind of changed everything, but I was really into uh, the business world and loved the arts, um, loved being able to 
show my creative side and figure in different ways of seeing the world and having a perspective that was unique to me or unique to seeing something in a new light. Creativity arts. What was, where is that coming from? Is that something you did when you were younger? So thankfully at Bullis, it was just, they had incredible programs and, you know, I was extremely lucky to be able to go to that school and to have the opportunity to anything that my heart and mind desired to explore. And they had incredible art programs and every single trimester, um, I took advantage of that. I always took an art class. Um, and that was, that was a true passion of mine. What kind of art were you most interested in? I love the 3d world working with my hands and sculpting and clay and creating something from nothing. And it's, I wasn't as much into 2d art painting and things of that nature, but I was extremely into the three dimensional world of form and space. Very cool. Very cool. So you mentioned that your mom was very present for you after, uh, that accident. Uh, walk me through how she helped you, uh, as you go through a massive challenge. So right after my injury, the first thing that happens is you get transferred to a trauma center where they basically try to keep you alive. So I was transferred to university of Maryland, Baltimore shock trauma, and was immediately put on a ventilator. I had no movement below my shoulders was unable to breathe on my own. And for the first 14 days, I was on so many drugs, I had zero memory of it. And uh, I remember the first thing I remember, my dad came in um, and said, I just packed your sister's car to go back to college. And that was, you know, if we mapped it out, it was 14 days after. I broke my neck on August 1st, 2004. And um, so then that first month, it's about survival. And then you get transferred to an inpatient center, which was at National Rehabilitation Hospital in Washington, D.C. And that's where you get your spinal cord injury education, if you want to call it. And while you're at shock trauma, there's very, very strict um, visiting hours. So I was only able to see my parents like a few hours a day or friends a few hours a day. And the rest of the day, I was like in my room by myself, surrounded by doctors or nurses. And then once I was at National Rehab, was a little bit more of a relaxed setting because you're still trying to survive but it's more of an educational scene to get you ready to transition home and luckily I was able to get it so that my mom could stay with me and she had the bed next to me and for three months we were or two and a half months we were roommates and she really never left my side Mm. Mm. take me back to that day and what was it like for you? Do you have any memories as far as as soon as it happens? And if it's too hard to talk about, uh, I don't understand that. But I, I would just love to get into the actual uh, meat of, of that event and, and what that was like uh, being in the ocean. So growing up, I, I always went to Bethany Beach for family vacations. And the big thing with with that also was that so many of my friends and other family members were down at the beach also. So we, that day I ended up meeting up with about um, 10 of my buddies who were also in town. And we all went down to the beach and um, they were starting to play some football on, on, on the beach and I was in the water. I wanted to, just bought this boogie board. I wanted to ride some waves. I think I saw like a documentary that summer about riding waves and it was, it got me to want to be in the ocean. So I was there and about, um, halfway through or into, into my, um, time in the ocean, I ended up putting my guard down and watched my friends toss football on the beach. And all of a sudden, um, a wave just came behind me, picked me up, grabbed onto my boogie board and threw me over top of it and slammed me head first against the ocean floor. And I remember hearing a huge, crack like it was just like a crunching sound and it was just the vibration of my my fifth cervical vertebra was like vibrating through my entire body and I immediately tried to move but I couldn't move anything and I was unfortunately face down in the water so at the same time of not being able to move anything I wasn't able to scream for help and all I could do was 
hope that my friends would see me floating. And I immediately went into a, growing up, I did a lot of swimming and a lot of kind of games in the pool where you had to hold your breath. So I was really good at that. And I just immediately went into a relaxed state, knowing that if I panicked, it would only get worse. There's nothing I could do at that moment other than try to hold my breath and and hopefully one of my 10 friends would see me floating. And um, luckily they did. So they drag you out. Um, are you still close with those guys? What was, oh, yeah. what was their reaction when they saw you? They knew something was wrong right away. Um, the waves were so strong that day that immediately it knocked off my shorts. So I, I literally was a newborn baby trying to enter a new world of spinal cord injury. Like it was, it was literally, um, I was brought onto the beach. They covered me up. Um, my, one of my best friends, Patty ran and got my dad who was about three blocks away and, um, you know, hit the, my dad remembers hearing like Dr. Basil, Dr. Basil, Josh, Josh is hurt. Josh is hurt. And my dad came to the beach and he saw my, my neck was bent and he knew immediately what happened. And um, I remember telling my dad, what about our tea time tomorrow? Cause mm. I was so excited to play around a golf with him. Cause that's what was one of my favorite things on a family vacation. Um, and he said, Josh, we're not, we're not going to be able to make this one. And um, next thing I know I was medevaced uh, in a helicopter to go to the hospital and they put um, different drugs in to calm me down, and I went to sleep, and I woke up 14 days later. And then you're, you're spending two, two and a half months with, with mom. What was your mindset like during that time? Um, you know, there's, there's, there's two things that I'm a big believer of, and it's kind of the, the exact opposite. There's, or you can call them the opposite, but... They're, they're different. Um, false hope and hope. And I'm a big believer after a traumatic event, providing hope or false hope is the best thing you can do for somebody because it gives them an immediate purpose to look forward to something and to, to get that fighting edge to not lose out to the mental paralysis that can come with something that tra- traumatically happens to you. So my dad, um, you know, looked me straight in the eye and says, we're going to beat this. We're going to beat this. And I had no reason not to want to believe him, not to trust him. And it gave me that fighting edge to get through those dark days and to come to the next chapter of my life to find new purpose and a new fight to fight for. Um, so I'm a, I'm a big believer of, of any form, any color, or any shade of hope. What was the next fight that, that you took on? Um, transitioning into this world. It's, um, this world is made for two legs and not six wheels like I have on my power wheelchair. It's, uh, it's a world that you have to navigate in a unique and different way. And I want to emphasize the word different because it is this life is so different being a quadriplegic. But it's it's not ruined. It's it's uh, it's a different life, and different can be awesome. Different can be beautiful. Different can be sad, but different can be so much fun at the same time. Like I, I, I know we're just meeting right now, but I could tell you all the things that I do in my life, and you would probably react like, "How do you have time for all that stuff? Can How you? do you do all that? Go ahead. We I, got time." <laughs> So no, like it's, um, after my injury, I formed a foundation called determined to heal about 10 months after my injury. I wanted to share my story to help mentor newly injured families. And, but I quickly learned, you know, you, we have more than 30 vertebrae in our body and each vertebra branches out to a different part of your body. So each spinal cord injury level is a different world needing a different mentor. Um, if I was one level above, I would have no movement in my arms. One me- level below, I would begin to have use of my triceps and then the next level of a finger. So each level is a different mentor and my story wasn't enough. So I was like, how do I bring mentors to every level of the world? 
So what I did, I started taking videos on YouTube and breaking them down by physical functionality. So giving them physical functionality tags and organize them into different categories and subcategories for the world of paralysis. And over the years since creating it, we now have over 9,500 videos and somebody puts in their physical paralysis, their functionality. And next thing you know, you have 500 mentors to show you what's possible. Wow. And the, the fun part about it is for me, at least is if I see somebody else doing something in my position, it kind of kicks me in the butt to want to do it also. So our motto of our website is see it, believe it, do it, the power of experience. So that's one side of the foundation. Another side is so often when you have a spinal cord injury, you get stuck in the comfortable walls of your home and you just don't want to leave. It's just the outside world is a scary place and you go where it's comfortable, where it's normal, where it's where you're, you're not afraid to, to be questioned or looked at differently. So what I try to do is find ways not to trick people to get out of their homes, but to convince them that there's something worth trying. So I put together adventures, um, anywhere from indoor skydiving to adaptive sailing, adaptive skiing, surfing, you name it. If there's a way to get somebody to experience something, we'll take families out on that. Last year, we had 115 different spinal cord injury participants go out on 15 different adventures that we put on. And my probably my pride and joy of the adventures is that the families never have to pay a dime and their only worry is to how much fun they're going to have and how many memories they're going to make. And it's just, it's, it's so, f it's so cool. And we've had, we've had adventures that we've done. Like I, I went hang gliding, <laughs> hang gliding, pulled up by an airplane, towed up in a hang glider with an instructor um, uh, below me flying the hang glider and dropped off at 3,500 feet and just soared the skies for 30 minutes. Um, I took a, a 60 foot catamaran with two elevators, took a quadriplegic and a paraplegic. And we went from Key West all the way down to Cuba and spent four days down in Cuba playing a sport I invented called slingshot golf and sailed back. Um, what's, what's slingshot golf? So, you know, when it comes to my injury, I have very little movement. I have, I have the movement in my right arm to be able to operate uh, a power wheelchair. And that's literally about it. So, but what I have is my mind. And I used to play a ton of golf. And going out with my dad and my friends right after my injury, I was a spectator. And I would watch them play. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm so much better than this. I, I got to... <laughs> I wish I could just have an opportunity to try to sink that 10 foot putt you just missed. Like I know I could have made it, but at the same time I, I was like, I started having these dreams of this pendulum putting device that would sit on the ground and with a crossbar and the putter would just rotate back and forth and swing just forward and backwards. And the next day I went to the local hardware store called Stroh Snyder's in our area and bought all the different pieces and put it together and it worked. And over time I've developed this pendulum putting device that I now have two patents on and it has a protractor with 180 degrees and every degree correlates to a different distance. So it's, it's basically a, a putter that dissects the greens and it's like a video game controller, but it's live on a golf course. I just set it to what it does, line it up the best of my ability because reading golf greens is never easy for any any ability, but if you can do it, put the right line and the right power, you might make that putt. So Josh, I'm just curious because I'm an idea guy. I come up with ideas all the time. Your friends, uh, the Friedson brothers who are my friends, hear them all the time. What gets you from idea to action? Idea to action, it's if you have an idea and it's worth pursuing, pursue it. Why wait? Um, you know, break it down into the steps it's needed to get it to the end goal. But start start off with that next step that needs to happen and the next step and the next step. And with persistence and with a will to make it happen, you're going to make it happen. 
And that's the way I've always seen it. If, if something is worth fighting for or doing, do it. Bottom line. Um, and I guess that's how I've lived my life. It's, you know, it's weird. It's my, before my injury, I used to do things a million different ways. Since becoming paralyzed, becoming a quadriplegic, I now do it a million new ways. And that's just the way I see it. It's, it's not a matter of what I can't do. It's a matter of what I can do and with a little creativity and a little um, focus or a little drive, I'm going to make it happen. And that's just the way I, I try to see the world and, and I've been able to do good things since. If you look back at 16-year-old version of you, what would you say to him? Um, I would have just kept told him to keep loving life because I did. I, you know, it was kind of weird. When I was floating face down in the water, I was probably holding my breath for a good two minutes. And towards the end, I, I really did have a moment where I'm like, Josh, you've lived such a good life and if this is going to be the end it's going to be the end but I just have always been so genuinely grateful for every everything that I've been presented with it's just been such a beautiful life then such a beautiful life now um it's just the only difference now is I've got a new set of sexy wheels to to cruise around town with and um probably the one thing I probably would have said to myself actually was to focus a little more on my education because um, I think I was a little distracted by sports and girls and I definitely could have been a bit, I was a good student, but I wasn't a great student. And after my injury, I you know had a, a new focus for my education, went to the University of Maryland, um, graduated with honors with, with a communication major. And then I decided I wanted to strengthen my voice to the next level and my advocacy skills and decided to go to law school. Um, was a full-time student and ended up graduating magna cum laude with ever, without ever flipping a page with my fingers. Mm. Everything is done through technology now, so all my books were, were scanned in. Um, every single word I typed is through my voice. And it's just... I was very focused during those three years with law school. That was, those were not easy days, but I, I made it, I made it my, um, my, my main, uh, my main goal to get through. What were you focused on? Cause when I hear focus, I, I think there's different types of focus, right? You can be very broad with your focus and external, or you can be broad internal. You can be very, uh, you know, broad internal, narrow internal, broad external, narrow external. So there's different channels of focus. When you think about law school, what type of focus did you have? So I always try to focus on what I can do rather than dwell on what I cannot. So focusing for me is always trying to find the best way to absorb the information that's being sent at me because that's what law school is about. It's about taking information and digesting it and then regurgitating it out in a critical thinking manner. So law school was that for me. How do my professors want me to translate what I've learned to paper to then let them give me a good grade, basically? I know, I know that sounds a very simple manner, but you know, at the end of the day, school's about grades. It's also about trying to learn as much as you can, but grades at the end of the day is what people remember. Um, or I don't want to feel like that's a bad way to think of it. But well, it's, for, it's, for law school, there's something you're actually trying to achieve, right? There's graduating. I don't know if you took the bar, but there is a, a systematic process to what is success. You want to differentiate, differentiate yourself from your peers. But at the same time, I went to a law school that was very much more relaxed than like a Georgetown uh, gunner atmosphere of everybody out for, to get in front of everybody. It was a it was a much better environment at the school I went to. People would um, I would make friends and they would share notes because I couldn't take notes. Um, and then I would 
venture, my my study notes that I created from theirs. And it was a very, uh, it was a great environment. And I really, really enjoyed my, my, my study. I went to UDC Law, which is David A. Clark School of Law here in D.C. It's the Public Interest Law School. It was a great environment for me. Very cool. I want to go into your mindset a little bit at law school. So I have this theory that people that listen to this podcast know is your mindset for preparation should actually be different than your mindset for performance. And when I heard you talking just now, it sort of resonated with me, which is, you know, in preparation, you sound so purpose driven, uh, just how you live your life. It's very, you know, if you know why you're doing what you're doing, then you'll go. And when I was listening to you talk about Stressniders and going and getting the putter um, and creating it. It's like, no, I know why I wanted to do that. So that was easy for me to take action. So I think purpose and, and curiosity and knowing why we do something can drive us to actually, you know, prepare and get everything ready. But then to actually execute the putt, like you said, that's about reading the green. That's about just understanding how it how fast do I need to hit it? It's, it's much more execution. It's much more how. And when I heard you talk about law school, it was coming back for me as well. It's like, I know why I'm here and I have to focus on how I'm going to get the grade that I want, uh, how I can make sure that the teachers are happy and I can execute. So I'm curious if you can sort of unpack what I'm talking about with your mindset for preparation and how it might have to shift for your mindset when you're actually performing. So for preparation for me, it's, it's always... It's always a matter of doing everything I can to be be ready. Or cause, so I guess the best way to say this is to be focused enough to try as hard as you can and to have a game plan that is not only doable but effective. So there, there's so many ways to approach any situation, right? But what is the the most streamlined way? What is the most way that works with your skills, your assets, your abilities? And if you can c- formulate what that looks like to work with your own set, that's what it is for me. It's preparing with what I have. I don't have much physical ability. Um, I do have caregivers, who are always there to be my hands. So I have something to work with from a physical aspect, but it's different. And I have to communicate in a very unique way, almost like coding, to break it down because what I'm thinking and saying to somebody, asking them to do something for me, it's not as simple as that. Like in your mind when you're doing something, there's also another 200 things that are going through your mind that actually tell you, how to handle something or grab something or to do something. So I'm a, I'm a, I really have to focus on my communication when it comes to that. Secondly, I have to focus on my mind and what are my learning skills? What are my abilities to take those learning skills and craft them in a way that allows me to, to approach a situation in a really strategic manner? And then at the, at the end, it's just when it comes to es- executing, um, to be yourself or to, I guess it's easier to be yourself if you have a certain personality and a certain way of delivering things. But I guess just be ready by being as prepared as possible. You can't ask for anything else when it comes to the de- time to execute it because preparation in my eyes leads to more luck and more luck. Okay, what I'm trying to say with the luck. So being more prepared allows you to be to execute more efficiently. But for me, I've had a very, very lucky life, but I promote it to my hard work ethic because I put myself in situations that with time I have more and more opportunities to get lucky and to never, I've never been one when something presents itself to not be grateful and and take uh, and to make the most of that opportunity that's in front of me and I think people need to recognize that when opportunities present themselves you know if you have the time and effort 
and willingness to do it, you should pursue it because it's, it could lead to another road, another chapter in your life of, of fun or greatness or just opportunity. It's what's your spirituality framework? Uh, I'm spiritual. Um, I, I really, um, I really um, just find a special connection with the world and energy that surrounds us. And I try to surround myself with as much goodness. Um, really, when I say goodness, I, I want to focus on the word of just of people that, that will bring a positive light to my world or my day or to kind of energize me in a direction to go after everything. And, and I always want to put myself out there for people that need to be energized and to try to let them see the world in a better way because too often we get so ingrained into societal norms or what society is telling us how to live our lives. But the truth is it's, it's what, how do you want to live your life? You know, it could be, it could be way different than what your, your next door neighbor's living, but it could be something that genuinely makes you happy and gives you purpose to wake up every day. So finding that is kind of my spirituality, my energy, my just willingness and wantingness to be around just beautiful people and people I care about. What do you do on the days that aren't glamorous? What do you do on the moments, not even days, what do you do in the moments that are not glamorous? So I try to think of moments in, in my life that have let me see the world in a different way, in a different perspective. So I've done a lot of mentoring. I've mentored hundreds, if not thousands of families individually. And I remember going back to my hospital room about a year after my injury at National Rehab Hospital, same room I was in for two and a half months. And I visited this man who was just a little bit older than me. And he had the same level of injury, same movement. But during surgery or during something early on at, the, at uh, his trauma unit, he had a blood clot that went up to his head and made him blind. He was a quadriplegic that couldn't move much and couldn't see. And it hit me that life could be worse, Josh. Life could be different. Life could, life could be seen, heard, or experienced in a different way. And the way that you're experiencing it now is to tell you the truth, I, I wake up with a smile. So I know it's it's a, I can handle this. I can handle what my day is going to be like. So then when something bad happens during that day, I try to get grounded on the fact that genuinely I love this life. And those sad moments, those tough moments, they make us stronger. They make us, they make us appreciate those amazing moments that are there every day that if you don't take a moment to appreciate them, you forget them. So I have this way of trying to hold happy memories or amazing moments longer. And I call it the three second rule. It's not really the three second rule, but what I try to do is I take three, 10 seconds to absorb each one of my senses during a given moment. So let's say, I am in the hang glider, 3,500 feet above the ground. I take a moment to listen for three to five, 10 seconds, as much as I can, as close as I can, as far away as I can. 10 seconds to see as close and as far away and to really just exercise each one of those senses individually. And I keep doing that over and over again. And I find that those memories, those moments, just stick with me forever. And it's just, I've been able to create a database or a memory bank of so many incredible memories that it's just like, I love life. 
What's going on for you right now? What do you feel? Right at this moment? Yeah. Just at this, this is a podcast. I've really never done a podcast in person. So this is pretty cool. I'm trying to take in this moment, uh, enjoying the fact that I'm able to hang out with you and, uh, and, uh, being able to reach your listeners and to be able to hopefully change the, change the way the world sees paralysis, hears paralysis. And, it, and you know, it's just, we all have different abilities and it's just a matter of being willing to try and being willing to go after, to, to wheel big, to dream big, whatever you call it. It's just, life is beautiful. I love so no one's going to be able to see this and we'll be able to cherish this moment, just the two of us. Uh, but I want to sh- bring the listeners into the room with us. And when you were describing the hang glider and you actually closed your eyes and actually went through the practice. And then um, when you said, and then I would look around and your eyes wandered around this room. So Josh was actually just practicing what he was talking about and uh so you know that that's real and i just think that's such a cool practice of presence of of present um and you mentioned that word right from the get-go with your mom uh the her ability to uh stay present with you um what else do you do in your life to to tap into the present to tap into the present it's just I do love doing certain meditations. I love trying to be as grounded as possible because too often in in today's world, I'm a medical malpractice attorney now and I have a foundation that I'm running and I have employees that I have to stay on top of. I do policy advocacy work both locally and nationally. It's There's always something to be done and with that you end up living in the past and the future too often and to get back to the, the moment at hand. I feel like for my mind, if I don't do that throughout the day, it, the beating drum of the day of the mind of life can get overwhelming or just get to be too much and you just lose yourself in, in work rather than loving life. So I guess I hope that answers. Yeah. What What do you do as far as meditation? Um, just focus on the breath. Uh, really focus on the breath until I, you have a good anywhere from two to five minutes of just clarity of not worrying about the past and the future and just, just to be one in the moment, I guess, is I try to do that throughout the day. So you do it. Is it a morning practice? Is it throughout, throughout? the day? Yeah. I try to do it. You know, just like a good, just like how food fuels the body, I try to fuel my mind with a break every once in a while. Very cool. Um, gratitude has been a uh, seemingly north star for you, and you've mentioned it throughout the podcast. You've named it, and then there are other times where you talk about gratitude without naming it. Was that something that was cultivated in you from a young age, or was that something? It sounds like you talk about before the accident and after the accident. So I'm just curious when gratitude entered your, your life? Yeah, it's, I think it was in great and early childhood. It's just, I definitely lived a different lifestyle than most just for the fact that my dad was a doctor and it's the truth with that is that most opportunities that could present themselves were affordable or were available. Like I grew up in a neighborhood where we had, um, like a swimming pool, a tennis court where all the kids would gather. And it was just, you know, my I could basically in the summer times go and play all day long. And I had a very unique childhood that it's just I knew f- early on that this is not how everybody else gets to experience the world. And I just always, it always, I think, drove me to be the best I could be with anything that presented it whether it was tennis, whether it was arts or even like games. I, I was, I loved chess and I just, I guess I think chess also was a huge factor that gave me a certain mental game. Um, Cause it always made me think a few moves ahead. And I think I, I try to apply that in everyday life because it's even for me to get here today, 
I have to think a few steps ahead because I know my wheelchair um, and my physical ability. I can't open a door. I need to make sure that I get dropped off in a certain location that I can get in and then be able to do four different things to get to your office. And for someone that's able-bodied, they don't think about that. It's just go get out your front door and you'll go to your destination. You'll make it there. But to tell you the truth, I've been locked out of a building for 30 minutes for a meeting I needed because I couldn't open the door or couldn't hit the button to get up to the their office. So that right there is, I think, what I was talking about earlier. So you need to visualize in preparation. You actually have to see yourself in the future. And so being in the present, being in the moment, it's really valuable. It's immensely valuable, especially in a smartphone world. Um, And so is thinking ahead. Um, So like one of the binaries that I talk about is visualizing in preparation so you can be present in performance. Um, And so I think that's what you just talked about is like, I need to visualize what I'm going to do ahead. I need to plan. I need to prepare. If I don't prepare, then I get locked out. Um, and then I can't perform. Um, I think, I think, uh, spinalpd.com, my mentoring website and our motto hits it right on the nail. Tell me about it. See it, believe it, do it. And I think that's what it's about. I think it's that visualization, that preparation, and then acting on it is what, how I see the world and I, how I see mentoring the future of the paralysis population. And let me riff on that because I think it's super cool. And you said that earlier too. See it as the preparation. Um, believe it is almost the practice, all right? And you think about tennis, it's like, all right, I need to see myself doing certain things. I need to work on my technique. I need to master the, the swing. Uh, but then there's a practice of actually believing it uh, so that, when it comes time for my match, I can actually do it. And so I think so often with athletes, it's that muscle memory that they their, their bodies end up doing what they need to do in the, in the easiest way and without exerting more energy than is needed. And it's just natural, it's smooth, it transitions perfectly. It's fluid. I think I try to do the same with my mind because um, my mind is my greatest muscle right now. It's my biggest muscle, and it's just I keep exercising and exercising to be ready for those moments of the day where I need to deliver and execute, and it's just it's a different way of looking and experiencing the world. So I certainly am not, I haven't gone through a a traumatic experience in the same way you have, but I was born deaf in my left ear, and uh, it wasn't something I really thought much about until I got older and gained some more self-awareness. But I think one of the things it gave me was I'm really good at using my eyes and I see things that I think maybe other people miss. Um, Do you notice anything about how your mind works now um, in in ways that are different than the way it worked before? I think it's about being focused. Like I was, it's not to say I was focused on the wrong things in my childhood with sports and girls and having fun, I guess. Normal for a 17 year old. And I think that's, probably a lot of things that someone should focus at that age it's it's kind of a worry-free time of your life until you got bills and mortgages and things of that nature that you have to grow up into and but like my focus now is on making the most of each and every day um i love the saying that i'm here to have an adventurous spirit and adventurous wheels and I try to live every breath because it's worth doing that and it's it's a meaningful way to approach my day and that's what I try to do who helps you 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 mentioned caregivers who else helps you on your journey I uh, so I have a team I have um two um uh, nighttime nurses that have been with me for 12 years. And I have one uh, daytime caregiver who takes me to work. And that's basically been my team. Um, I also have my mom, my dad. I have my family members, my friends, my sister, my brother-in-law, my grandmother. It's just to get to me where I am today I did not do it by myself. There's no way I could 
ever even think that I could be where I am today without my team. Um, and my, I have an incredible team and that's the truth. What have you learned going through your experience up until now? What, what, what are the big lessons that you've learned? Um, big lessons that I've learned is just to never give up. It's just, you know, life is too short to think that, that an obstacle is not worth overcoming. Life is too short to think that you are going to lose out or I'm just, I always want people to be willing to try to, to not, to be, to be able to see that if they do try and gave it all that they have, that, that, you know, at least you did that. I know there's probably a saying that you, what is it? You can't make, you can't, it's like the free throw line. You, you can't make any shot you don't take or something like that. Sounds pretty accurate. Yeah. So it's just that, that idea of, of, of being willing to try and to give it, to give it your best is what I want people to always try to do and strive for. So being your best 10 years from now, where are you? What are you doing? What do you, what do you see for yourself? So in 10 years, I think the main chapter of my life that I'm missing out the most on is that I want, I've always felt that I want to be a teacher and I think the best teacher you could be is to be a father. So, um, constantly, you know, I've, I've had different loves in my life. I've been on the dating scene and had some pretty serious relationships and, but I think in 10 years I'd love to be married, to be, to find that special someone and to become a dad and to share all my wisdom with a, with a few, with one or two little rugrats and just, uh, be able to, to do that. And I don't know, I just, that would make me more, that would make me so happy. Awesome. So, uh, you wear a lot of different hats. I want to just give you a platform to promote what you're involved in. Uh, talk about the advocacy work a little bit and let people know how they can help support all of the missions and, uh, initiatives that you're up to. So my foundation, my nonprofit, um, we're a 501c3. It's called Determined, the number two, Heal. And uh, we help newly injured families transition to life with paralysis and give them the, the tools they need and mindsets they need to, to be successful and to live active, healthy lifestyles. Um, we do that through our mentoring platform, SpinalPD.com. We do that through our adventures. And as a nonprofit, we... You know, we don't have a service where we get paid for things other than showing the world that we do good and for people to support our efforts. So any support people can give that lets us keep continue doing great things. Um, our big advocacy push now is called, uh, it's called the Willing to Work campaign. And last September, I got a letter in the mail from the state of Maryland saying that Josh... If you want nursing care, we're sorry. The program that you're in um, is now blocked from getting the care because you're working. Mm. So you can get the care you need, but you're going to have to quit your job. Mm. So I ended up reaching out to Andrew Friedson. I reached out to my state senator, my local delegates, and we put forward a bill in the Senate and the House in Maryland and closed that loophole. And the governor signed it into law um, about last month or two months ago. And to tell you the truth, that was not easy. It was three months of pure, intense advocacy, um, getting as many different legislators on board, knowing what the issue is, and getting them to come to the table to support it. And we did that. And it's just the start, because currently in Maryland and across the country, someone like myself has to be in the Medicaid system because there's no long-term care insurance to pay for caregiving. It just, it doesn't really exist after an injury. 
and Medicaid is the only system that will really allow you to live and thrive in the community. And so they have these things called Medicaid buy-in, which allows you persons with disabilities to buy into Medicaid while working. So you're able to work and get keep your Medicaid benefits, but currently in Maryland, there's all these rules and that you have to follow. So one of the rules is the second you get married, you basically your assets and their assets get combined. And to tell you the truth, it ends up meaning that you or your wife have to quit their job or work part-time, or as state officials have told me, that you have to, you're better off not getting married and just being uh, happily divorced or cohabitated partners for life just to maintain the Medicaid benefits. And I, I just don't think that is, that's not, I want, I want to be able to get married just like everybody else and, li- and have love and pursue love and not be punished for love. Another thing is they, they create thresholds of success. So they say you can only have $10,000 in assets in the bank account. You're allowed to have a home, you're allowed to have a car, but if you exceed $10,000 in assets, a bank, um, savings, things of that nature, you get kicked out of the program. And for me, it makes no sense because I have to save for the future. Like I, my parents always taught me to save for a rainy day. And being a quadriplegic, it can pour at any moment. My wheelchair is a $50,000 wheelchair. My functional electrical stimulation bicycle is $20,000. My my exercise equipment is in the thousands. And my car was a $70,000 adaptive vehicle. How am I supposed to save for a rainy day or save for future expenses if I'm not allowed to save for it? Another thing is there's a threshold. They say how much you can make. So the second that I became a, an attorney, literally I could not make a dollar more than what I am now or I'd lose everything. And so they're saying that based on my skills, my knowledge, and my abilities, I'm capped on how successful I can be, or at least I can't get paid any more from it. I either have to work less hours and get paid the same or get paid more and work less hours, or I need to work part-time or choose a different career that doesn't make so much money. And to tell you the truth, I don't think that's the way the system should work. I think the more you make, the more you should pay into the system. And there shouldn't be any threshold on success, on career choice, and ability to love. So our Willing to Work campaign is going to change that in Maryland and across the nation. I'm actually leaving this meeting to go to Capitol Hill to meet with Congressman Langevin, who's the only quadriplegic congressman in the country in Rhode Island and where we I've been gathering up a team of people where we have about 15 disability organizations that are coming to this meeting and we're going to hash out a plan to to make this happen on a national level so you just came alive as you started talking about your passion and your purpose and uh, it gave me chills when when you talked about passing it in in our state at, at University of Maryland uh, in in the state of Maryland. Uh, so credit to you, props to you for continuing to pursue uh, something that obviously is not just a passion but impacts you. Uh, it impacts a lot of people too. Mm-hmm. So uh, first off, I just want to thank you. Uh, thank you for your spirit. Uh, thank you for your gratitude. Thank you for your energy. Uh, thank you for coming up the street and, and chatting with me crazy long commute <laughs> uh, and hopefully we'll we'll grab lunch and, and continue this conversation and uh, I know for me I, I'm I'm already thinking of ways of how I might be able to contribute or help or or get behind you um, and I encourage our listeners to also uh, get behind you we'll put all the information in the show notes so people can find you are you on social media anywhere as well um so we have Facebook with Spinalpedia we do a lot of promotion with that on Facebook Twitter um, and um, Pinterest, um, our foundation website is determined number two heal.org or spinalpedia.com. And, um, and uh, I guess if anybody wants to email me, I, my email is josh.basil, B as in boy, A, S as in Sam, I L E at gmail.com. Awesome. And um, it's all, it's really about getting the community behind you, getting, for me, it's always about getting the, the wheels on the ground and to create a, a, a revolution of change and 
and creating a new narrative. So that's what I'm all about. Love it. Josh, thanks for coming on. People can follow me on Twitter at Brian Levinson. And then the Instagram is intentional underscore performers. And you can go to our website, intentionalperformers.com. Josh, you are an intentional performer. Uh, and uh, as I said, look forward to many more conversations. Thanks for having me on today. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode jam. I'm a big believer of, and it's kind of the, the exact opposite. There's, or you can call them the opposite, but they're, they're different. Um, false hope and hope. And I'm a big believer after a traumatic event. Providing hope or false hope is the best thing you can do for somebody. Because it gives them an immediate purpose to look forward to something and to, to get that fighting edge to not lose out to the mental paralysis that can come with something that tr- traumatically happens to you. So my dad um, you know, looked me straight in the eye and says, we're going to beat this. We're going to beat this. And I had no reason not to want to believe him, not to trust him. And it gave me that fighting edge to get through those dark days.